This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean... Potty Talk. It's Thursday, September 1st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a special on the Vice Network, which you can get through Hulu, but not regular Hulu. You got to pay for live Hulu. And there are uh, some tricks. I don't even know how to get there. I just, I, I pay for Hulu. I wasn't even allowed to watch it. It's called The Dark Side of Not Being able to watch Hulu shows. No, it's called The Dark Side of Comedy. And they focused on the comic Andrew Dice Clay. And if you're young, you're a little out of the demographic of this show, but you may have never known or forgotten who Andrew Dice Clay was. He was a comic who bestrode the earth, the first comic to sell out two nights of Madison Square Garden in the early world of comedy. He was a phenomenon. And he was also, in much of his comedy, offensive, more than offensive, you know, really homophobic. Let's flat out say it. And some of his jokes weren't jokes. They were just essentially calls and response for racism. If you don't know the language, get the fuck out of the country! Really, what craftsmanship there. Just going over the exact syllables to make that particular bone move fly. But still... It's an interesting story and a bit of a cautionary story because as the Vice documentary, which is really well done, lays out that he did fly too close to the sun and he did cross the line, as they say in the documentary, and he was punished for it. It is a case of what we might call now cancellation, although then it wasn't done through social shunning. It was done through applying pressure to CEOs of uh, Hollywood and entertainment companies, in some cases, prominent gay men like David Geffen, to stop doing business with the Dice Man. And he had a three-picture deal. They made the first one. It was terrible, but it also got no support or publicity. And the next two pictures never got made. They kind of drove him out of comedy. Although you could say, as some allege in the documentary, that he did it to himself with his unapologetic homophobia, racism, etc. Here's my insight into Andrew Dice Clay. And it's not really into Andrew Dice Clay. There was an ugliness to what he was doing, and certainly when you see the shots of his fans hoop, hoop, hooping at Madison Square Garden, all of a very similar demographic, white men, you don't get feelings that this was all done in fun. However, if today we could wipe everyone's memory that Andrew Dice Clay ever existed, and you just took his comedy, the comedy of the first couple of HBO specials, where he was known for dirty limericks and attitude and sexual punning, for instance, and you gave that material, remember, no one else could know that it existed, but somehow you gave that material 
to a really sassy drag queen. I was thinking it might work with many a female comic. No, it would be best to work with a drag queen. And the drag queen were to do Dice's material, that drag queen would have a hell of an act. Little boy Blue, he needed the money. Drag queen would kill that joke. Many others like it. And the reason I'm saying this now, I've thought about this for a few years and I've never got to tell Dice or really any drag queens. I just have to put it out there to lay claim to it. It's such a good idea. Someone's going to take it. And every once in a while, I don't say something. And then they make a movie like yesterday where the Beatles never existed. And then someone comes to earth who knows the Beatles. I thought of that. Not with the Beatles, but just actually with the Rolling Stones. I thought of that years ago and I never said it. So I'm saying it here on my podcast. This is why I have a podcast to tell you my totally random non sequitur ideas. Here it is. Mark it down. Give Dice's material to a drag queen. They'd have a good act. You're welcome. No one who asked. On the show today, Virginia Heffernan has spieling responsibilities. Beware, because she's trying to slip you the black pill. But first, Eve Fairbanks, author of The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning, is here to talk about the 10 plus years she, an American, has lived in South Africa. She went there chasing a more exciting culture after Barack Obama's win here in the United States. South Africa then was on the path to progress. That progress has if not outright stalled, maybe curdled as a dream. Her book is not dry and historical. It's told through the aspirations of three main characters. It is anthropological and meditative. It has plenty of resonances for America today. Eve Fairbanks is up next. Eve Fairbanks' new book, The Inheritors, is part history, part ethnography, and part reflections of someone with American roots and an American on a country that she came to call home. The country is South Africa. The subtitle is An Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning. It's unbelievably insightful exciting, well-written. You get to know the people. You get to know the country. And I came to be convinced that there will be a movie made of it. I mean, they made a Marie Colvin movie, and it was only okay. I think that uh, I'm going to cast Margaret Qualley as Eve Fairbanks in the movie version of her book, The Inheritors, which hasn't yet been optioned, to my knowledge. But Eve, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Give me a little biography. When did you go to South Africa to live and why? I went in 2009. I just covered um, Obama's campaign and the 2008 election with McCain for the New Republic. I'd worked there for three years as a rat denizen of the congressional building, the congressional correspondent there. And um, I don't know, we're so um, so self-regarding in D.C. D.C. is like a microcosm of the sort of American exceptionalist. You know, we don't necessarily think other countries have parallels with ours, have something to teach us. And D.C. is like the most navel gazing, most kind of internalizing uh, city. And I was tired of it. I mean, it was only 25, but I just thought there has to be insights into how politics work in a diverse society, um, into the elite, into whatever that exists elsewhere. So I basically, I got a writing grant, but I 
I bought a one-way ticket to South Africa after learning something about it, reading about it, um, getting interested in it. As a good and curious journalist, was a part of you chasing a more exciting culture? I mean, in 2009 with uh, Obama's win, it to remind people, he, he gets he wins the Nobel Prize soon thereafter. It seems like, I mean, serious people weren't saying we're now post-racial, but there was a little air of, okay, Fukuyama predicted the end of history. It seems to be go, it seems to be true. I know we're having a recession, but things seem pretty solid and interesting in America. Let's turn our focus to a different place. Place where maybe there's more upheaval. I've wondered about that. I mean, you know, that is an instinct. I think the U.S. was really exciting. There was ex- exciting in, in some dark ways. There was Sarah Palin. There were sort of weird things erupting and emerging on the horizon. But there was that very powerful sense that we were closing some giant chapter of the American book. And maybe there I think it was really hard for people to imagine what would come after that and that it would be very interesting and have these sort of tensions and central dramas. And South Africa was a place that kind of closed its own history book of a certain period in history 15 years before I got there. And, and, and yet it still existed. I mean, I think the way South Africa was written about when I read about it before I went there, it almost made it seem like it would just kind of wink out of existence after Mandela, because this huge story had ended and the kind of miniseries was over and um, and there had been the resolution of a lot of struggles. But and I was wondering, like, okay, this place is still there. People still have to live there. They have to deal with the memories that they had of things that they had done when they were kids under this very different system. And it's still going forward. And that seemed really interesting to me and also like hopefully it could in a secondary way have some lessons for a place where I'd grown up for America. Was the sense, maybe not the reality, but was the sense that South Africa was now on the glide path to progress? Something like three quarters of the foreign correspondents who were in South Africa under the late years of apartheid in the late 80s and early 90s left around 1995. And Mm -hmm. So as in our job is done. Our job, yes. We have uh, made this happen in part by right by by bearing witness. Um, and and now we're gonna move on to you know places where the story is still unresolved. And um and so I think the sense was less that South Africa was on this glide path to progress than it was unseen by people outside. Obviously, it's not true within the country, but um and I think if there were there were writers and and foreign bureaus who I feel kind of wanted to keep it that way because it was such a hopeful ending to apartheid, to segregation, such a beautiful, inspiring end to the story that you don't want to necessarily like prod at it too much to see the fragile parts. Well, the interesting thing about, and, and I think your book backs, backs this up, is that if we cover the history of a country as through the great man lens, let's say, Nelson Mandela was that. He wasn't without flaws, but he really was a truly exceptional, maybe one of the most exceptional figures of the 20th century. But the point is, as, and, and you tell me your reflections on that, but as exceptional as Mandela was and as laudatory how he sought to remodel the country in a way that, you know, 
a lot of other former colonial powers did it through blood and renaming and reclamation and vengeance, and he chose not to do that path. And, you know, all props and uh, uh, compliments to him. It doesn't get to the vast majority of South Africa and the reality for most South Africans. When I got there and throughout the dozen years that I have lived there, there's been a big conversation in the country about what, you know, how great was Mandela? And I think one has to say he was great on a level of any, you know, possible great leader. Um, He's at the top. But there were people who felt like a kind of pressure to be like him and to model the same, um, the same kind of forgiving aura, the same hand extended, the same um, kind of peaceable mean. And they didn't necessarily want to do that. And they didn't feel that they could. They didn't feel, you know, they felt almost ashamed in the light of that example. And it reminded me in a very loose way of some of the feelings people had about, let's say, Obama's efforts to reach across the aisle to Republicans, how he would always say, you know, these are good people, um, you know, and and that there was an element of like the fact of his position and his power and his kept him insulated from the types of damage that one's kind of political adversaries might be able to do to you. So it was a little easier to do that. And, you know, people people also felt like maybe that attitude of Uh, reconciliation, that intense concern to frankly keep white South Africans in their capital in the country, to mollify their concerns, to make them feel comfortable, that this had a time and place, but that time and place was ending. And now we need a new model of how to talk about, I don't know, redistribution, justice, you know, how people should really live in a permanent way in this new kind of one man, one vote, multiracial place dominated by voters of color. But the question is, as a democracy and as an actual democracy, the people could have chosen leaders who went about that path. And when we talk about the people, race is uh, more complicated, I guess, in South Africa than it is here. I think we can agree that 13% or so of the population is white. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. That's almost the exact population that is African-American in the United States will cabin that one for a moment. But, you know, they they had choices, they had political choices, and for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure some people will cite colonialism and others will cite the frailty of man or the uh, infancy of the system, it does seem that the leadership that has been chosen has been more marked by corruption than any sort of cogent plan for progress. Does it seem that way to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I say in the book, and I make the argument, and I, I feel strongly about it, and I would encourage people to read it, they can buy it or not, but that the previous regime, so the, the, the white regime, which wasn't exactly colonial in South Africa by the, the 70s and 80s, it was a white segregationist regime that developed the reputation, gave itself the reputation of being immoral, but very kind of honest in a bureaucratic way, money wasn't stolen, Uh, Resources were efficiently deployed. They built tons of roads. They built all this, you know, electricity infrastructure that that was um, a reputation that was itself kind of a sham and that this government and this is known was extremely corrupt. So you can almost say that 
that Mandela was an outlier and the new black government inherited a legacy of both explicit corruption and kind of acting in a way that sort of is rent seeking and like retrieves money from this vast pool of poor. And I think what people didn't expect was that black leaders who had fought apartheid, who had been struggle leaders, people like Mandela, people who had really opposed this white supremacist system, that after that system collapsed, there would be maybe less barriers to them almost yearning to emulate some of the very powerful former white leaders in in the way they governed, in the way they operated, in the way they thought about wealth. So you do have this whole new class of Black South African elites who are rapacious, who, you know, hide cash in their couches, who have no, seem to have like no shame about almost acting like the white elites they once hated in terms of just gathering uh, money to themselves. One of your characters, and you follow three, and it's it's a great tactic because we as humans see the world through humans. It's important to have a character to identify with, is a former activist um, who had a lot of purpose in her life when she was an activist. And now, post the collapse of the uh, apartheid regime, is, well, how would you describe her? Yeah, Dipu, it's, her name is Dipuo. She... Um, was someone that I knew through a another young woman that I knew, and she was her mother. And she had been born in 1970. And so she was a teenager at the kind of height of the struggle against apartheid. And then she turned, I think she was 24 when it ended, and she had a young child. And she realized this collapse, this sort of change of um, the way the world worked and the way you know, who was in power and, and what type of figures dominated institutions happened super, super fast in South Africa. It's like much faster than most other places. And she talked a lot about how little she had really understood her own expectations, that she had imagined that life would be beautiful, that she would be able to work in a job she deserved, that she would have a nice house, decent house, that her kid would have opportunities. And she actually experienced the aftermath of segregation as, as almost a new burden. It's like, oh, now you have this huge gift, which is freedom, and now you have to make something of it. But in fact, there's very few paths to do so. So she ends up, you know, she does a lot of NGO jobs. She um, is a, a kind of local political leader, but she ends up working for an advertising agency, a kind of gleaming advertising agency. And this was even in 2008 that they, everyone else who worked there kept forgetting that she wasn't the maid, um, you know, in, in ways that I think are recognizable here, but were very severe there. And this was a person with a lot of status and respect in her community who was, you know, fought for uh, breaking down the old ways she did. And what did it get her? It got her not too much in way of material gains and, you know, a much more fraught life in terms of psychology. Yeah. And two things happened to her. I mean, she had a nerve, as she would put it, a nervous breakdown. And I thought it was fascinating the way she talked about that. And quite honest that like these types of things, phenomena, like, um, 
you know, systemic racism that we sometimes talk about in the abstract or as political phenomena really affected her psyche super heavily and super deeply. She ended up in the hospital. And second, she also talked very frankly about how she transferred her hopes onto her daughter. And her daughter is this exceptional, brilliant young woman who becomes a kind of path breaker in every school, every, you know, newly integrated school and starts writing as a teenager in ways that get national notice. And yet she she ended up having this tension with her mother because she felt as though her mother was now looking to her generation and to her to kind of make things come true in a material way in order to justify the suffering that they had gone through as teenagers living under an oppressive regime. Like you you have to have a good life. You can't have bad things happen to you. You can't fall off the rails um, or else my suffering doesn't have a meaning. It's almost like she is an immigrant in her own country because the country has changed. The country has become different things. I love the way you put that. It's actually a fra- like an idea that I played with for the book of talking about how you have this odd country where almost everyone who lives in it and who was born in it has become an immigrant because that's how much it's changed. Now, this girl's name, I mean, she's not a girl now, is Malika. What is, what, has she changed class from her mother's class? What, uh, what is her, how much has her life improved? Um, I don't know if you want to say because of, but correlated to the collapse of apartheid. She has absolutely changed class. Um, she has a big presence on social media. She's a writer in her own right. And she's unabashed about like wanting material comforts. So she, bought herself a house in a fancy neighborhood. She's got a master's degree. She posts a lot of pictures of herself in bikinis as a body positivity thing, but also like I can go, you know, and she'll be a bit ironic about it. There was a famous martyred um, black consciousness thinker who was killed by the South African police in 1978 named Steve Biko. And it, you know, in quite a, quite a violent killing and quite an iconic anti-apartheid figure. And she and her friends will say, you know, they'll post a picture of themselves with a new car or in, in a nice shirt. And they'll say, Steve Biko died for this. And it, it has a lot of layers because on the one hand, I think they feel that way. And they want to kind of say like being able to have pleasure, being able to relax um, is you know, literally some of what our forebears fought for is not just materialism, but they're also a little, they're kind of dealing with a bit of guilt. Like, is this really what Steve Biko fought for? Because Malaika will say that she's, she is an outlier in her um, ability, for instance, to go on a vacation to Switzerland, to get an NGO, to get a corporate jobs that pay a lot, that most of her friends are still stuck in, in the township. And tomorrow we will be back to discuss if there are any examples South Africa should learn from and talk about white South Africans who, for instance, look at their childhood with nostalgia only because the horrors of the past were hidden from them. That'll be Eve Fairbanks, author of The Inheritors, tomorrow.
Virginia Heffernan brings us today's spiel. She is a contributing writer at Wired, the author of Magic and Loss, The Internet as Art. Magic and Loss is also the name of her substack, where you could track her for all her various audio projects. She just ended a show called This is Critical. It's really good. And I heard on her podcast, she's going to be doing another podcast soon, something called Not Even Mad. I look forward to that. Here now is Virginia talking about the art of blackpilling, which means different things to different people, but I think Virginia uses it to mean the radicalizing event that turns an American citizen basically nihilistic. Let's swallow the ultraviolet infrared pill of Virginia Heffernan right now. And now, the spiel. So I used to think the Cold War was all about ideology. I mean, I guess if you were a teen and you didn't have access to ICBMs and Yuri on drop-off meetings, the only way you could join the Cold War was to take sides in classroom disputes about democracy versus totalitarianism and capitalism versus communism. And obviously, I was pro-democracy, and like every normal kid except one I will call Calix P. Eaton, I was mostly a socialist, thinking what kind of psycho would be against welfare. In 1991, I decided the right side had mostly won. If we could just gently rehabilitate those American psychos called investment bankers with pottery programs at fun hippie work camps. You know that acronym that helps Power trippers, remember how to coerce you into stuff you don't want to do? Mice. Money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Now, I totally respect you if your weakness is like cash or flattery, but mine is ideology. Sing me a snaky siren song about a worker or the matriarchy where we all nurse each other's kids on an island, and I'll sleepwalk with you to the gulag. I mean, I'm trying to stop doing that, but ideology is still my weak spot. But then I started to get the sneaking suspicion that some people were just not that into ideas. Like Mike Pence. He was such a truly annoying, conservative family values, genocide of the unborn person in Indiana. But then he dropped all that like a wet rag when he went to work for Trump. Still, I thought someone had to be an ideologue. And I'm telling you, I don't think ideologues are good people. They're probably mostly bad people. But people with actual beliefs, especially about the polity and the cosmos, are just far, far more interesting to track and often less predictable than people who are will-o'-the-wisps for money or power, like Mike Pence. But then ideology made a comeback, and suddenly, suddenly, there were two kinds of people again, Stalinists and Trotskyites, sharks and jets. But this time, we had... Normal people walking around taking liberal democracy and market capitalism for granted, making some dough, feeling weirdly stressed, people like you and me. And then there are other people who believed they could see through us and they could see all of reality as clear as a bell. And we were zombies all asleep. Now, that's when you know someone's convulsed in ideology. They believe they're clairvoyant. That crowd even had a name for itself, Red Pilled from the Matrix. Now, the terms of how they could see through us kept changing, but the general idea of the red pill was that the vast majority of Americans were zombies controlled by banks or Dr. Fauci or 5G or elites, whatever they are. And those people have been with us for way too long. 
But why is it bad for red-pilled people if they get all hopped up on their clairvoyance? I mean, it looks kind of cokey and fun for them, right? Well, gravity obtains, and the mania of only I can see clearly is often followed by the fuck everything, what does it matter of despair and depression. Enter the black pill. If the blue pill is Prozac and the red pill is meth, the black pill is fentanyl or or cyanide with a side of some kind of explosive. Okay, to get out of the draggy pill matrix, we'll call this state of mind what it is, despair. Despair as in the QAnon revolution never happened. Q turned out to be a weird pervy schmo. January 6th was a failure. Hillary Clinton's still at large. The lizard people won. Maybe I shouldn't have rooted for neo-Nazis on Instagram because it's hard to get a job now. My girl left because I thought all I needed was my woman-hating He-Man incel subreddit. Why bother? Nothing matters. There are various options when that particular shade of despair descends, and the black-pilled person's action items, according to the Anti-Defamation League, who've been tracking them, are generally suicide and suicide advocacy, mass murder and mass murder advocacy, and an option called LDAR. That's lay down and rot. Yes, I know it should be lie down and rot, but come on, that's the least of our problems. And I get it. If you're a conservative and you realize based on the last 40 years of presidential elections that your party cannot win the popular vote except with voter suppression, cheating and a coup, you might either change your platform and try harder to win the real way, or you might turn on democracy itself. That's the state of the red pill life. And then when the voter suppression, cheating and coups don't work and you lose anyway, you might get really really demoralized, and really just LDAR, or worse. And don't think it's just January 6th also rans in tactical athleisure, or people who are too Thorsey and deprived for the Oath Keepers who go for the black pill. There's some posh intellectuals, too. An edgelord named Carl Yarvin got so disgusted with liberal democracy and libs and elites that he became a monarchist. And showing that ideology is a twisted mistress and, and a twisted sister, various libertarians then got into Yarvin's idea of a monarchy. Libertarians for kings and serfdoms. Okay. And there's also, and here's where I'll finally get topical, Daria Dugina, who was just car-bombed by a terrorist in Russia and her father, Alexander Dugin. That's Putin's Rasputin. It's worth looking into the shared Dugan ideology, and, and, and Dugina was Dugan's PR agent, to understand what's going on in Russia when it comes to ideas. So on the same day Putin announced he was going to Ukraine to fight Nazis, which nobody took seriously since he always just plunders and murders and has no ideas, Dugan came out with a speech to try to give an ideological framework to Putin's massacring flex. So here's the Dugan cosmos. It's pretty simple. Russia is uniquely unassimilable into the ideological empire of the West, with its H&M, its market capitalism, its pronouns, its liberal democracy. And Russia needs to fight back and form a Eurasian empire. With the invasion of Ukraine, Russia is now expressing its complete rejection of, and here I'm quoting Dugan, quote, Humanity, civil rights theory, human rights theory, and this global world. I've got to repeat that. Humanity, civil rights theory, human rights theory, this global world. 
So if good old red-pilled people reject like woke academia and the fake news media, the black-pilled go a step further and reject the whole shebang, humanities, civil rights, human rights, this global world. Hmm. Humanity itself. That's the ballgame. Who's like this in the U.S.? Probably Dugan's favorite American running buddy, Steve Bannon. I, I, I've been listening to him a little bit lately, and it sounds like he's been washing down some black pills with his scotch. But here's why not to be happy about that. It's tempting to be excited that one's political and personal rivals are feeling hopelessly demoralized and defeated and indifferent even to who wins elections. But don't be. A democratic society is profoundly destabilized if too many people in it give up hope that it can get better. People start flying Nazi flags, they resort to violence, they kill people, and they die of diseases of despair. So how to improve life today? Start with yourself. I'm not telling you to cheer up just to think positive. I'm telling you to cheer up for your country. Don't take the black pill. Allow some microns of hope for democracy to help you get through the day. And I've got one for you. I mean, come on. Biden just gave a bunch of us 10 large. When the American federal government is just throwing money at me, democracy looks pretty good. So maybe I'll just go with that. Cash the checks, become bribable, and let ideology rest for a while. At least that's what I'm trying to do. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, worries about getting gray-pilled. That's where they try to convince you that Benjamin Moore's Revere Pewter is every bit the same gloss as Pharaoh and Ball's Mole Breath. Mole Breath. Pharaoh and Ball. So much deeper and richer. Meaningful, really. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.